So Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 25 today. While you're flipping there, imagine something with me. Imagine you've been offered a once-in-a-lifetime, all-expenses-paid trip to London, England to have dinner with the Queen. Okay, imagine. There's no deposit necessary. There's no timeshare pitch that you have to sit through. It's just a promise of a delicious meal with Her Majesty. So you pack your bags, you catch your flight, you hail a cab, but when you get to the front door of Buckingham Palace, if such a door exists, I don't know, front gate, I don't know, you see a list. There's a list of 613 specific criteria that you must meet before you can go in. Your clothing must be a very specific blend of fabric. Your hygiene has to be immaculate, which is pretty you know, difficult for some of us. <laughs> Jokes. Jokes. Uh, your etiquette must be flawless. Clearly, I don't have any. <laughs> your reverence and devotion must be 100% directed toward the queen. All of this is the criteria. You, you, you have to fall in line with these criteria in order to go into even the entryway of the grand dining room. So imagine what you're thinking as you read through all 613 rules. You'd probably be thinking a lot, but one thing is for sure. You would probably start to give up hope at ever seeing the queen. The requirements would be just too high. The list itself is almost too long to comprehend, let alone embody. But then something happens that you didn't expect. Through the windows of Buckingham Palace, you see the queen sprinting to the door. She, she knows that you're here. She bursts open the door so fast that it almost comes off of the hinges. And with the biggest smile that you have ever seen, she tells you, come in. I have been waiting for you. Come in and sit with me at the head of my table. All that is mine is yours. There is nothing in this palace that is not yours, that does not already belong to me. I bet once you picked your jaw up off of the front porch, again, if the Buckingham Palace has a porch, I don't know, once you pick up your jaw and once you manage to collect your thoughts and the shockwave you know, gives way to reason, I bet you would wonder as you're sitting there at the table, but what about that list of 613 criteria? What, what was up with that? Now, of course, this is just a really goofy illustration, but, but this is precisely the question that's at the forefront of this morning's passage. See, up until this moment in the book of Galatians, and for those who haven't been with us, the book of Galatians is actually a letter that was written in the first century by a man named Paul, he's Apostle Paul, he was an eyewitness and follower of Jesus Christ, and he wrote this letter to a collection of Christians and a collection of churches that he had just recently planted throughout the region of Asia Minor known as Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. Up, and, up until this moment in his letter, in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, we have seen Paul adamantly repeating 
and, and preaching the very message that he had just preached when he was planting these churches. The message is called the gospel. And, and the gospel is good news. It's, it's a message of good news that sinful people can receive forgiveness and eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ. So at the time of Paul's writing this letter, he hadn't been away from these churches in Galatia for very long. But already, in the short time that he was away from them, a group of teachers from Jerusalem who were called the Judaizers had traveled to these young, impressionable churches. And they began to preach a message that sounded like Paul's, but was, at the end of the day, contrary to Paul's. They would say something like this, churches of Galatia, in order to truly be a Christian, you must obey certain Old Testament laws in addition to the faith in Christ that Paul had preached to you. Essentially, they would say, forgiveness and eternal life are yours by faith, yes, but also by your works, because You have to look like a Christian before you can actually become a Christian. It's essentially the message that the Judaizers were preaching to, again, these young and impressionable Christians who made up the churches of Galatia. And much to Paul's horror, these young Galatian Christians were believing the Judaizers. So up until this moment in the book of Galatians... Paul's been telling them that the message of the Judaizers, salvation by faith and works, is a false gospel. That is an accursed message. It is damned and heretical and it ought to be regarded as spiritual poison. Paul doesn't mince a lot of words. He's pretty serious. He writes in Galatians 2 verse 16, which is really the thesis of the entire book of Galatians, that no one will be justified before God by works of the law. Because when it comes to transforming sinners into saints, the grace of Jesus Christ works alone. It works alone. It is grace alone through faith alone. In Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and we learn this in Scripture alone. Those are the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. And you're hearing me right this morning. If you've never heard the good news of Jesus Christ before, you are hearing me right. Yours and my eternal salvation in no way hinges upon your performance of God's Old Testament laws. In no way, not even the Ten Commandments. As scandalous as that sounds, salvation and eternal life is offered to you freely this morning by simply trusting that in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, He did all of the work that was necessary to save you. Now, if you're like me, we're still seated at the Queen's table in Buckingham Palace. We're still wondering, but what about the 613 rules? We can't just overlook them, can we? Well, Paul anticipated this very question 
because the Judaizers were still preaching a gospel according to works of the law and faith. He anticipated that the Galatians were going to be asking, what about the 613 Old Testament laws that God gave to Moses and to the people of God in the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? What about those? Again, the Judaizers were preaching that the promise of salvation comes through faith and the performance of God's laws... So, if it's not by and the performance of God's laws, if it's just by faith that we receive grace from Christ, what do, we, what do we do with these things? What do we do with these laws, these rules? Let's read Galatians chapter 3, starting in 15. Paul begins our passage this morning by giving an illustration to the Galatians at why we are not saved by faith and works of the law. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring... Who is Christ? This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would teach us this word. We believe that These words of scripture were inspired by you through the pen of the Apostle Paul some 2,000 years ago. We believe that these words are beneficial and profitable to us to teach us and to train us, to to convict us, to rebuke us, to encourage us, and to lead us into all righteousness. So we ask that you would do these things. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, it seems like there's a lot going on in today's passage, and, and there really is. It's, it's a dense passage, and Paul can sometimes be hard to understand. <laughs> the Apostle Peter even said this in 2 Peter 3. He says that sometimes Paul can be hard to understand. So if you are struggling to understand this, you're not alone. I did as well, but I've had all week to study, so I have an advantage, right? So for the remainder of our time, let's boil this passage down into what I'm convinced are the three main points that Paul is making. So if you're a note taker, these are my three points. Number one, God's promises are meant to be believed and received. We're going to spend a lot of time there. There's a lot of background to that point. God's promises are meant to be believed and received. Number two, God's laws are meant to convict and condemn. Sounds intense. It is intense. God's laws are meant to convict and condemn. And point number three that I believe is being shown and highlighted in this passage this morning, number three, God's son was sent as the fulfillment of God's promises and God's laws. God's son was sent as the fulfillment of God's promises and God's laws. And my prayer is that as we ingest all three of these ideas together, we're going to see that Paul is simply reiterating in this passage what he has been saying the entire time. This thesis idea that through Christ, God has promised us forgiveness and freedom forever, period. And this promise needs only to be believed to be received. So let's look at number one. God's promises are meant to be believed and received. Remember the question we're asking at the queen's table. Remember the question the Galatians were asking in light of the gospel. If our eternal salvation, if our seat at the queen's table, if our eternal salvation in no way hinges upon our performance of those rules written on the wall, our performance of God's Old Testament laws, what's the purpose of God's rules and his laws? Before Paul addresses this question head on, he talks about the nature of God's promise. He explains in verses 15 through 18, you have it right in front of you, that similar to the way we humans make promises to each other, God also makes promises to his people. This is the illustration he's giving us at the very beginning of our passage. But for God, his promises are covenantal. They are not contractual. God's promises never change. They cannot change. They cannot be revoked. See, let's do a little bit of vocabulary for a second to make sure we're on the same page. A contract establishes terms that various parties are obligated to, ful to fulfill. What I mean by it, we see this in professional sports, right? We see that an athlete agrees to play and a manager or you know, a team owner agrees to pay, <laughs> There is a mutual contractual agreement. There's a transaction. A transaction, a contract, involves more than one party fulfilling an obligation. But God's promises, church, are not contractual. They are covenantal. A covenant 
establishes terms that one party is obligated to fulfill to another. And, and, and what Paul is kind of illustrating for us is that it's kind of like a last will and testament. This is a, a man-made covenant, so to speak. A man-made covenant is, is, is a man-made, or a last will and testament is a, is a covenantal promise of sorts in which a person bestows all of his or her belongings to someone else, right? It doesn't matter what that someone else does or does not do. Once the covenant has been signed, has been ratified, that person is going to receive whatever has been promised. This is Paul's point in verse 15. A covenant promise from God is a guarantee. Let's do a little bit of history to really look at what Paul is talking about by a promise. In Genesis 15, all the way back toward the beginning of your Bible, God made a covenant with a man named Abraham. See, ever since humanity rebelled against God in the garden... God had been planning a rescue mission. He said it himself in Genesis 3.15. So even through all of humanity's rebellion, through the flood, all of humanity's rebellion, through the Tower of Babel, and so on and so forth, God has always been committed to rescuing a people, a family of individuals coming from every tribe and tongue and nation in the world. And in Genesis 15, God begins that mission through an average Joe named Abraham. There was nothing in Abraham that made him deserving of God's attention and a promise. It was grace, it was amazing grace alone that God summons Abraham and he makes him this promise in Genesis 15. Abraham, you're going to be a father a patriarch of countless individuals whom I will redeem, whom God will redeem as his own chosen people, God said. God would rescue and bless men and women and children from every tribe and nation on earth, beginning with Abraham and Abraham's offspring, which Paul clearly says in verse 16 that is Christ. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. And just so Abraham could be fully assured of God's promise, fully assured that God's promise would come to pass, God guaranteed his promise to Abraham according to an ancient custom. So this is what God instructed Abraham to do in Genesis 15, and I encourage you to go back and read it later today. God said to Abraham, gather up five animals and cut them in half, a cow a ram, a goat, a dove, and a pigeon. Line up all of their carcasses in a row and then spread out their halves to make a pathway through which can be walked, essentially, right? A walkway. Now, in ancient contracts, the two parties involved in an agreement would both pass through the middle and walk down the walkway in between these carcasses, and it was a symbol So let's say the ancient LeBron James and the ancient 
uh, L.A. Lakers, is that who he plays for now? Yeah, the, you know, the ancient, you know, there's this ancient contract that's being made. Imagine LeBron and the team management both walking in between these animal carcasses in order to ratify a deal, and it was a symbol that said this, that if either of those parties backed up or did not fulfill what they were obligated to fulfill in that agreement, they too would be son in, son in half, cut in half, and separated from God. Talk about... I mean, like, you would really keep your word, I think, after doing something like that. And people died when they did not fulfill their part of the agreement. Now, here's what the most amazing sto- thing about the story. In Genesis 15, we're still in Genesis 15. God wasn't ever intending to make a contract with Abraham. He was intending to make a covenant promise to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring. You want to know how we know this? Abraham never walks through the halves. Only God passes through the halves. Only God walks through making this covenant that what I am promising you is one way and it will come to pass or it's on my own life. This is astounding. There isn't anything, so to speak, that that Abraham can do or that his descendants must do in order to receive this promise from God. Thus... God's promises are simply meant to be believed in order to be received. That was the purpose of God's covenant with Abraham. Abraham needn't go and and do anything for for the promise, which is that he would be a patriarch of men and women and children from all over the world whom God would call to himself as a holy family. Abraham simply believed God. We saw this, Paul explained last week in chapter 3, verse 6. Look, Abraham believed God. That is, believed God and his promises, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's simple as simple as that. Now, Paul desperately wants the Christians in Galatia And the Christians in Worcester this morning, he desperately wants us to connect some dots here. He wants us to see that our standing before God is in no way based upon our performance of an agreement, and it never has been. It's never been about our performance securing our right to be sons and daughters of God. Yours and my standing as sons and daughters of God is not based on anything that we do, but on believing what God has already done, and ultimately what God has done through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Are we all on the same page? Is that making some, there's, a, there's a lot of dense history here. So despite what you have been told by the pastor on TV in the past, Despite what you may have been told by Christians around town, your Christianity is not based upon you cleaning up your act. Your Christianity is not based upon your church attendance or the amount that you tithe or the boldness of your witness at school or at work or how many Bible verses you memorize. And Paul lays this to rest in verse 18 of our passage. With this sound reasoning, he says, if inheriting God's promises were somehow tied to rule following, then it would no longer be a covenant promise. 
do we, do we see that connection? It would be about our merit and not about God's grace. Just like Abraham, you and I receive God's promises when we plainly and simply believe God's promises. Now, there are all sorts of abuses going on on televangelism of the world these days. And I want to lay a couple of them to rest. This could be an entire series. What we are not talking about in God's promises is perfect health, wealth, and prosperity. Because nowhere in God's Bible does he promise you that at any point in your life. You need to read your Bible to know that. But what he does promise you is so much better. He promises in Deuteronomy 4 that if we search for him, we'll find him. He promises in Romans 8 that he is working all things out for the good of his people. He promises in 2 Corinthians 1 that he will comfort us in our trials. He promises in Hebrews 4 that he will help us in our time of need. In Philippians 4 that he will finish the work he has started in you. In Matthew 11, he promises that he'll give rest to the weary and the heavy laden. In James 1, he promises that he will give you wisdom when you ask for it. In John 4, he promises eternal life to those who trust him. And in John 13, sweet mercy, he promises that he's coming back for us. Scripture is filled with God's promises. Do you know them? Are they written on your heart or a note card? <laughs> in the back of your pocket, in order to believe them and receive them. How often in my day do I look to myself to be my own help through trials that I cannot handle when all the while the sun is saying, come to me, I'll give you rest, I'll give you help. Paul's saying, stop making everything about your performance right now. Stop it. Do God's rules serve a purpose? They sure do. Do his laws serve a purpose? Absolutely. But they came 430 years after God had made this promise. As Paul writes in verse 17, 430 years after God gave this promise to Abraham, then the law comes to Moses, one of Abraham's descendants, but the law does not annul the previously ratified covenant promise of God. God's promise cannot be made void. So when the law came at Mount Sinai, this was something new. This was something different. This did not negate that in order to receive the blessing and salvation of God, you simply have to believe God and to trust his work. The promise still stands. So why the law? We've gone this whole time and we've not even really addressed that. Why the law? Point number two. God's laws are meant and have always been meant to convict and condemn. Let me explain what I mean by that. Paul tells us plainly in verse 19. The law was added because of transgressions. God's laws were given because of sin. Now let me illustrate something for you. Uh, last week or two weeks ago now, 
Miles, Robbins, and myself and my dad, we were painting some of the rooms in my house. We were painting the trim that I thought was white. I thought it was white. It looked an awful lot like white until I started painting up pure white, like Sherwin-Williams. Yeah, pure white. And I was going over this like, oh my goodness gracious, I thought that what was already up here was white. But after the years of, we've only lived there for a year, there, there were renters before us. After years of dog hair and spilled and sprayed apple juice and dust and all that stuff, after years, what looked like white was absolutely, it was, it was, it was not white at all. Now, why do I say that? This wasn't an ad for Sherwin-Williams, although I love their paint. Similar, similar to a fresh coat of pure white paint, the law of the Old Testament scripture was intended to show us that we are not as white as we think we are. We've gotten used to the color. We've gotten used to ourselves. We think there's a purity here. I'm not nearly as bad as the guy next to me. And then the law drops and then we go, oh no, I look nothing like that. I look nothing like the perfection of all of these rules of God. The law of Old Testament scripture is meant to expose how sinful we really are and to show us our utter need for divine grace. It's meant to convict us where we stand and to condemn us. Paul's language in verses 22 and 23, the scripture, also known as the law of the Old Testament in this context, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Have you ever thought about your Bible imprisoning you, for goodness sakes? In verse 23, holding you captive. I mean, the term guardian that Paul goes on to use about the Bible is a little bit more friendly, but goodness, I never thought about scripture imprisoning me and holding me captive. And if you were to go to Romans chapter 7 this week, Paul teases this concept out in just beautiful colors. Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees who, who followed all of the 613 rules on the queen's door, he had no idea how sinful he was until the law dropped until he really started to examine what's required of the people who want to enter. He had no idea how off-base, how off-white he was. He had no idea how much he actually needed a one-sided miracle of grace to come and save him. He didn't know any of these things until the law imprisoned him. Now, in the second half of verse 19 and 20, Bible scholars aren't 100% clear on what this means. Paul seems to be alluding to the fact that, that God's people, they were given the law through Moses, an intermediary of sorts. But the promise was given directly to the offspring of Abraham through Abraham, to, directly to Abraham and his descendants from God himself, the one who does not change. So, as Bible-loving Christians, we can continue to search out the, the meaning of, of the second half of 19 and 20. But until then, the main thrust of this passage doesn't change. It's not altered. It remains clear. 
Look, the main thrust of Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 25, is that like the rules posted on the queen's front door, God's rules, God's laws, all 613, including the Ten Commandments, are intended to shine a light into our total sinfulness and expose our dire need for undeserved favor. Paul asks in verse 21, so with that in mind, is is the law contrary to the promises of God? No way. God's conditional laws serve to magnify his unconditional grace. I just wish that I would have known this in my early Christian life and that I would have devoured scripture with this in mind. That when I came to the Ten Commandments or when I read through the Pentateuch, the law, the first five books of the Bible, when I came to Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus takes the law and just skyrockets it up to an impossible level to attain, instead of me going time and time again to my Bible to get from my Bible the list of things that I was going to work really hard at that day in order to earn my righteousness. I instead would have read my Bible and I would have looked and I would have seen, woe is me. This is pure white and I don't look anything like this. I am a sinner and I need your grace, Lord. Because it's that posture, it's that posture that really sums up the entire point of the law. In Psalm 51, David cries out, it's not the sacrifices, it's not about the law that's pleasing to you, God. It's the broken and contrite heart that comes out of the law. That looks at the Bible and says, I am no match for holiness. Save me by grace. I can bring nothing to the table but filthy rags that I once thought were pure white. Too often we read the commands of Scripture and then take from them a list of things we're going to go try to do to become worthy. And that is what the law was never intended to do. So what we've seen is that God's promises are meant to be believed and received, that God's laws are meant, they're designed to convict us and to condemn us. And point three, this is going to be brief in my closing. God's son was sent as the fulfillment of both. This whole time, Paul has been preaching faith in Jesus and faith in Jesus alone. Because in regards to the law, Matthew chapter one tells us, that Jesus was actually born into the line of Abraham. He is a true blue blood descendant of Abraham. He is Abraham's offspring. And in Matthew 5, we learn that Jesus perfectly obeyed every last jot and tittle of the law in perfection. He fulfilled all of the 613 requirements to enter. And therefore, the promise of yours and my redemption, the promise 
of right standing before God is ours when we simply place our trust in what Christ has already done. This is exactly what Paul is getting at in the second half of verse 16, in the second half of verse 19, in the second half of verse 22 and 23, and then 24 and 25. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It is those of faith who are the true sons of Abraham. We learned this last week in chapter 3, verse 7. It is those of faith who are united with Christ in his perfect righteousness. So what Paul is offering to the Judaizers and the Galatians, what works of the law are left to be performed if we are united with the one who performed them perfectly already? What else is there to earn if it's not simply by faith alone in what Jesus has already done? Now, what about the law still? How do we deal with it? How do we treat it? What do we do with these commands of God that are very, very, very serious? I'll tell you what we do with them. I don't know about you, but if I were sitting at that table with the queen, I'm still riding this. I'm going to ride this illustration until it's just dead, okay? If I were sitting at the table with the queen enjoying the best soup that I could possibly imagine in her company, I would be so astounded after looking at that list that I was allowed to even come into the entryway, let alone seat, be seated at the table. I would be so overwhelmed with the gracious mercy of it all that I would, I would strive so hard to be the most well-mannered guest she has ever had at her table. Out of gratitude, I would yearn to honor her with the best etiquette. I would go and take a shower. And you know, I would go and I would change my clothes. I would do whatever it took to honor her for the gift she had already bestowed me with. And that, my friends, is what we do with the law. We read the scripture, we look at the fact that we were not deserving to enter in the first place, but we are here by promise, by the sheer gracious welcome of our king. And now, out of the love of our hearts, we want to respond to him. We want to look like his law, because in his law is goodness. There is, it, is, it is flourishing when we obey him and when we look like Christ, is it not? God's son, sent, God's, God's son was sent to fulfill the law, but he did not abolish it. He did not completely throw it in the trash can. It's so that every day you and I would go to our Bibles and be reminded, I am completely unworthy to be in your presence, Lord. But you have deemed me worthy by the blood of Jesus, by your grace. And now I want to get up tomorrow at 5 a.m., and I want to pour through this. And I want to read what your law would require of me. And then with great delight, I want to go out and I want to obey you. I want to obey you. Not to be accepted because I already am accepted. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. 
I'm going to close with this. Someday you should read through, I've, I've given you a lot of reading homework. Someday you should read through Psalm 119. Read these various psalmists and what they think of the law. Having been redeemed by faith, one psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law still. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste. They are sweeter than honey. I want to know the scriptures like that. Don't you? Let's pray. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Yes. Yes. For those who are here who have never been set free by that truth, Holy Spirit, set their hearts free today. Set our hearts free by the truth of your gospel that we are far more sinful than we ever dared thought, ever dared to think, but we are far more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. This is good news, and this is the type of good news that will spur us on into holiness and into righteousness. We will look like Jesus and Jesus' law by simply accepting the salvation by promise, by faith. Let it be so of us today, and let us sing in response to it in Jesus' name. Amen.